Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the latest in the impeachment testimony south of the border. Cannabis companies are feeling the pinch. And the Prime Minister unveils his new cabinet today. Any changes? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for my, uh, Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Your thoughts on what we're seeing uh, go down today and uh, the testimony of Gordon Sondland and, and, and what we've witnessed so far. Honestly, it's just more of the same. It, it really comes down to whether you believe that, as, as you sort of alluded to before you introduced me, you know, whether you feel that all that happened here between the U.S. and Ukraine was quote-unquote illegal, or it was just part of the procedure that, yeah, isn't very pleasant how it went down, but these sorts of things often happen in back rooms or private rooms or private discussions between political leaders, maybe not to the level we're discussing here, but on a smaller scale. I mean, unfortunately, people who've worked in politics know that lots of things go on behind the scenes. And, yeah, sure, maybe it's not as intense as this or a Watergate that Richard Nixon faced or something like that. But there's just a lot of things that happen that I don't think the outside world really knows or understands. Most of it, obviously, is not illegal. I certainly didn't see anything that was illegal. Most people I know who've worked in politics, either conservative or liberal, have not seen things that were illegal. But there's a lot of stuff that's discussed where, you know, if it were brought out in public or even just some of the private conversations that have been released over the years from Nixon's tapes to... Uh, say the Reagan Mulroney discussions, if, you know, during the during the eighties and other things. There's nothing necessarily wrong with any of them. No one's going to go to jail for any of these discussions. But a lot of things are discussed in private. And just because nobody's I, going to jail, does that mean there's nothing wrong with any of this? So is is everybody just making too much of this, Michael? Well, yeah, I mean, they, at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with the president saying we're going to withhold. Uh, military support or aid that we've already agreed to until you dig dirt up on on an opponent? I if mean, you believe that's what happened. I mean, that's obviously the type of people that the Democrats are going to be well, isn't that what, on, the, on the podium. And so obviously isn't that you're Son- on one side of it. But isn't that what Sondland is basically confirming today? So? They're, they're, every person so, the Democrats put You're supposed to stop at a stop sign. He didn't. So? God, God. I they're going to bring out people. Like, help us understand this. Brought not, out who are going to complain about this? I'm, I'm not, not going to be. Unusual. I'm not trying to be partisan about this. Which I'm just trying to understand it all. So is there anything legit? So you're saying that none of this is legit? No, I don't know whether it's legit or not. Again, I said it depends what your feelings are about what happened and whether the scenario played out the way it did. I mean, we're also basing things, for example, on a conversation that was held in a, you know, on a table next to other people. That was brought into discovery, so to speak, and now we're basically using that as evidence. I mean, there's, just, there's a lot of things that are brought into this in what is really a show trial. I, I think what it co- a court of law. This is not a legal proceeding. These are political parties yeah. going up against one another and bringing out the worst case scenario on one side and when the Republicans in the Senate because it's quite clear that Trump will be impeached in the House of Representatives. It would take a modern miracle not to happen. But he's going to be acquitted in the Senate, and the Republicans will bring things out that show the positive side of Donald Trump. This is the way it's going to play out. So what are we missing then? Like either he... So is it fine for a president to 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 say to another president, uh, the aid that I'm about to give you is contingent on... Uh, you digging up dirt on my opponent. That's, of course not. No that, one is saying it is. But but isn't 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 Sonnen isn't Sonnen now com- happen that way? Well, isn't that what Sonnen's now confirming? He, <laughs> Scott, he's saying it from his own personal opinion. There are also but he's a Republican whistleblower who produced a report that is his, her, their impression of what happened during the conversation. It could be 100% true, it could be 100% false, it could be 100% honest, it could be 100% politicized. We don't know. Why would That's it be the any... problem with these things. It's all a matter of interpretation. Why would Sondland's testimony be any of that when he's a Republican? 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. But remember, not every Republican loves Donald Trump. It doesn't work that way. Much the same way that when Bill Clinton was, you know, facing impeachment hearings in 98, not every Democrat loved him. So there's going to be people who have grievances or minor ir- find minor irritants with their leader or the, the supposed leader of their political so party you, you or don't, their movement. So you don't think that his testimony today confirms that that there, well, that there was quid pro quo, that he was asking the the Ukraine president for a favor in order to get the uh, military funding that he was already promised. I'm not. I'm not sure that the scenario played out exactly the way everyone is saying. And yes, I know Sutherland is a is a Republican, but it doesn't mean that his word is you know from the ear of God. It no, but he has like no that. reason to contradict the president. Well, he may have a reason to contradict the president. Look, for example, the vice president and his office has already come out and stated that this supposed meeting that the two men had or conversation they had never occurred. So is Sodland lying? Is Pence lying? Or is it somewhere in the middle? This is but the they're all on the same think. team, though, Michael. It doesn't, it's, you, but you know politics doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. Look, if that were the case, then why would people be speaking out against Andrew Scheer in Canada? It doesn't work that oh, way. Oh, I think we're talking about something way more important than Andrew Scheer in Canada. But you know what I mean. They, yeah, basically, there are but... conservatives who have spoken out against their leader, much like there are going to be Republicans who will either speak out against Trump, although on a more limited basis, or will open the door to certain criticisms or things they don't like about the president and bring it out. Do I know whether Sodlin is telling the truth or not? I don't. Do I know whether the first three witnesses are basing it on their own interpretation or they're basing it on genuine facts? No. The problem is that... Why believe anybody then? Well, that's the problem with these things, and that's the problem with impeachment hearings in general. Even though people call it part of the democratic process, excuse me, it is... There's also a huge element of politicization that occurs within these things. I'm not disagreeing with that in any way, Michael. But, uh, you know, again, it, it seems that, that the, the, you're using the same sort of political dance to sort of raise question on this when, again, the average citizen's just trying to make clarity of it all. Well, but that's the nature of spin. And, and it, that's the way it kind of No, but and up. at the end of the day, you've got a Republican up there testifying, you, you know, and predictably for his own team. And, mm-hmm. and you, you have to wonder if that... That, you know, if that doesn't hold credibility, then what else does? Well, I don't know, and that's the problem. I don't know how much of this... Is, is it a problem, is. Michael, or is it just more spin? Well, you can look at it any way you want, but unfortunately, I mean, just because a Republican speaks out about a Republican president doesn't yeah. mean that the world's going to come crashing down. It no. doesn't work like that. No, and, and the same for the Democrats. Same theory. <laughs> No, I, I'm just, you know, I, I'm just, again, trying to, to, to make sense of all of this well, and, it, and to see if... Uh, the, the, there's any sort of uh, substance to what these allegations are that the, the there may, president there may turn out to be substance, but right now that is bas- basically what we have is Sodlin contradicting or being contradicted by several things. He's presented his case. The president, in his usual fashion, says he doesn't know him very well, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which is a line he's used a million times. And really, quite frankly, even if he is lying, I wish he would say something different. But Pence coming out quickly and basically saying, no, I had nothing to do with this, well, Pence really hasn't been brought into this conversation at all. This is the first time he's really, truly been brought into this scenario. So, I mean, obviously for him, either it's that he's been hiding in the shadows and basically his role has never been understood, or it's nonsense. And that's the problem, and that's why it's very difficult for an outsider and an insider to sort of figure out what is or isn't going on. You just take sides on things like this, much like they did with Clinton in 98, and even much like they did with Andrew Johnson in the 19th century, even though he really should have been the first president impeached because it was clear what he had done. Uh, this isn't becoming more clear what the president's done? Again, you because can you know, like this president, yeah, there's well, lots it, of clarity. It's, but it's, you're it's, to well, again, you know, as a wait a sec. Of, well, but you're, that, that sounds like that sounds because I'm asking questions that I'm that I'm out to get the president. I'm not out to get the president. I'm just out to get to the bottom. Well, of Well, I'm of not this. out to the 
defend the president either. I've taken yeah. the middle ground with this man. But no, unfortunately, remember, a lot of these Democrats have wanted to go after Trump since literally the day he was inaugurated. I don't see how that's rel- so I don't see how that's relevant at all. I don't think that's relevant at all. all to this the f- has been forthcoming for a long period of time. They just found an opening and now they're going after him. And that's really what's happened. Well, that's politics whenever there's an opening. So, again, well, yes, at the, at the end that. of the day, it's about finding the truth. And, and, and for, for months, weeks, the president's been saying there's no quid pro quo, that, that I didn't do this, and, no then rele- and then releases a transcript or a transcript of a transcript of, of, of alleging how he that, that's supposed to clear him, which in fact just implicates him more. And, and, and now we are. I didn't interpret it that way. And now we are where we are, and we've got his own people coming up and, and, and basically confirming what the Democrats were alleging. No? Well, look, if you want to be judge, jury, and executioner, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just... doing, I didn't suggest that's what you're doing, Scott. Okay. I'm just saying if people want to do it that way, that's fine. And unfortunately, like, I understand there's process to this. Happens a lot. I understand there's process to this. But your thoughts on, you know, is, is what he's saying, is what Sondland's saying today just a lot of bunk? Is it just a lot of saving one's own arse? Is it, well, what, it what is could, it? it? Look, the problem is that Sondland is on the stand right now, quote unquote, discussing his position, his feelings, his sentiment, and his his involvement in this process. But remember, could there be another side to it? Could he have said something different? Could he be thinking something different? Could his involvement have been something different? The problem is we're only hearing his version of things. And it may be 100% factual, but it also may not. And that's part of the problem. Even when the Republicans hammer away at him, and they'll try to obviously show little, they'll chip away at it here and there, the only way you could really get the other side of things is to have someone who was with Sondland at that time and sees it differently. And maybe there's no one. But I'm just saying that, unfortunately, it's one person's opinion, much like the first three, are, it's all of their opinion. And when the, as I said, when the Republicans take this over in the Senate, it's going to go all the other way. So does that mean everything else was wrong? And that's part of the problem with these impe- and when when impeachment hearing. when this goes and let's presume he's impeached and then this does go to the Senate and sure. and, and as you said it will all be thrown out anyway. Of course it will. When it gets thrown out and when the Republicans make their arguments, will it just be a lot of political spin or will we honestly feel that um Will we honestly feel that all the evidence has been looked at, or will we feel that, no, these guys just control the Senate, so they're going to ram this through the way they they want? I guess you could say the same thing about the Democrats in the House. Sure. But again, we're still... You know, harboring on this phone call, which some say it went this way, some say it went that way. Right. Now we're hearing more that it did go that way. So, uh, again, will we see justice either way in this? Will well, we look, get answers to questions? Privy to the Republican strategy in the Senate, so I can't speak for that. I think a lot of it will depend on what's presented, not just today, but for the next little while. I mean, this is going to go on for months. It's not going to end in weeks' time, as much as some people are suggesting. This thing is not moving along with the greatest of speed. It's moving actually very, very slowly. But again, that's to be expected. What will their strategy be? I think it'll be a mixture of things. I think they'll probably try to show in the, in the Senate, the Republicans will try to show as many holes in terms of the testimony that was heard in the House, and they'll try to sort of break it down, break, about, break down the character of certain people, criticize certain things, maybe bring out information, again, that we haven't seen but of course there will be an element of spin, much like, and you just said it, there's a huge element of spin going on right now in the House of Representatives. That's the way this game is being played out. This is not, again, this is not a court of law. It's something very, very different, and it's a show trial. And when it comes to a show trial, there's obviously some facts that are brought in. There's also some fiction, and there's a hell of a lot of spin. That's what what are the what what are the Dems not allowing the Republicans to do here to prove it otherwise? <laughs> What are we seeing? What will, what, will, what will we see? The House of what will we see? The narrative. It's what will simple. we? Well, so what are we going to see in the? So in the Senate, once this is all done, are we all going to go? Oh, there's the other side of the story. Now this all makes sense, and we can make a valid judgment. Or are we just going to see the Republicans shut it down? I don't know. That's a good question. Now, but won't depends. that pretty? Won't that reveal a lot about what, what's what's happening here? Well, again, this is the fourth person to the stand. Four. There are more coming. 
So we have to see what the others bring to the table. Do they confirm what the first four have said? Do they say different things? Do they have a different version of the truth? Do they have a different version of their story? We don't know at this stage, and that's part of the reason why I find it very difficult, and I'm not the only analyst who does, to come out and say that this is the end, this is, you know, this is the, the smoking gun everyone's looking for. There is no smoking gun right now because, unfortunately, these things are so heavily politicized, there can't be a smoking gun. What would have to happen is basically what happened during Watergate. And, and as we know, Richard Nixon never faced impeachment hearings because he resigned. But the original break-in turned into something completely different where we discovered Nixon had all these enormous amounts of tapes. And why he kept them and didn't burn them or put them away or whatever is beyond my comprehension, as disgusting as it was that he taped them in the first place. But that changed the narrative. As of right now, we're looking at a narrative that still deals with the U.S. and the Ukraine. If something comes into the narrative that changes the story or changes the parameters, then we really have something to talk about, I think. And then it changes the whole way, not just the media looks at it, but the way partisans will look at it, too. As of right now, you can understand why Republicans are just saying this is just more of the same, it's a nothing burger, whatever comment you want to use, because they expected a lot of what's coming out. If there's some big witness who's going to reveal something that we haven't heard anything about yet, well then, there's an example of how things will change. Michael Tobison with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Fascinating discussion. It always is. Take care. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we remember when, uh, and and all the hype coming up uh, ahead of the opening of uh, recreational cannabis and stores and such uh, way back in October, was it? And lots of hype up to that. You know, this was the next uh, gold rush, lots of uh, hype and and, and, and the market and, and people jumping on board and lotteries and wanting to get a piece of it and so on. And the, the miracle drug here was, was going to make a lot of people rich. And then here we are uh, roughly a year later, a little, little over a year later, and canopy, uh, cannabis companies continue to have some difficulty in regard to maintaining stock prices and, and just trying to predict where this is all going to go and what the, t- uh, the, the template's going to be moving forward. Let's bring in Michael Armstrong, Ph.D. Associate Professor Goodman School of Business, Brock University, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for inviting me. So where are, give us a a lay of the land right now, where are stocks for these companies right now, uh, a year plus out? Oh, well, they're uh, lower than they used to be, uh, uh, which is very disappointing for a lot of investors. Um, In one sense, they're completely unpredictable. Uh, In another sense, uh, it's not surprising that they're down. Uh, There's an old uh, rule of thumb uh, that people buy on speculation and, and sell on fact. And uh, so, you know, a year ago, two years ago, people were buying cannabis stocks uh, based on the visions that were sketched out by uh, various CEOs. And now they're uh, selling based on the lack of profits they're seeing. So uh, here we are one year into this. Are you surprised where we are and where these prices are? Well, I don't actually worry too much about individual stock prices. Uh, from day to day or, or month to month, uh, there is a lot of uh, randomness. I mean, in the academic world, uh, my colleagues in the finance department, if they're uh, modeling stocks and bond prices, they tend to use random numbers for a lot of, uh, of that. Um, in the, kind of in the bigger picture, uh, what's not surprising is that there's been big price moves um, because uh, sort of two years ago, we didn't really know uh, how big the uh, legal sales would be at this point. We didn't really know how efficient any of the big operators were going to be, uh, how effective they would be at grabbing market share. Um, So if you were a uh, thoughtful investor, you were investing two years ago uh, on an educated guesstimate. Uh, You're placing a bet, hopefully with good odds, but nonetheless a bet uh, based on how you thought things might turn out. And... um, so it's not surprising that there, things haven't worked out as well as everyone thought. Um, 
but of course, no one could predict exactly what it would be. What we what we have here to some extent is, is a kind of a classic boom and bust. Mm-hmm. Um, a brand new industry starting up. Nobody's really sure how big it's going to be. So there's lots of entrepreneurs uh, racing to get set up, and uh, inevitably uh, they're not all going to survive. They're not all going to fit into the market. And that's what we're starting to see now. So is this common for where we are at with this industry? In other words, are these just, uh, would these be common growing pains? Uh, some of it certainly is. I mean, uh, any new industry, it's reasonable to expect some kind of boom and bust. Uh, uh, this industry, there uh, there's a hassle of getting a license. But aside from that, there weren't a lot of big barriers to entry. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur with... Uh, enough money in the bank, um, you know, you could build a greenhouse and apply for a license. Um, on, on the other hand, there are some things that are different about this, and one of them is the uh, heavy amount of government regulation. Um, so uh, sales have not been as good over the first uh, year of legalization as many people had hoped. Um, part of that was actually the fault of the producers in the sense they found the, uh, the first six months they really had trouble getting their production Increase. They had trouble getting finished product out the door, uh, and of course, until you get it out the door, you can't sell it. Um, part of that is related to the government regulators. Um, some provinces were slow to set up retail networks, uh, particularly the three biggest provinces: British Columbia, Quebec, and Ontario. Um, did not have enough stores uh, starting out a year ago, and uh, so industry that was building up to serve all of Canada. Uh, was only getting orders from retailers, um, you know, from less than half of the market in terms of population. Now, since then, uh, that the retail side has improved. So uh, British Columbia, although they only had one store open in October last year, uh, starting this spring, they started rolling out more stores, both public and private sector, and now they actually have a pretty good uh, starting network. Um, Quebec... Uh, started out only a dozen stores. They were kind of growing very slowly. Uh, but then last month, they, their cannabis agency announced they, were, they had realized they needed more stores. They're going to double their store count by spring. So Quebec is starting to look better for uh, making the product accessible to consumers. Unfortunately, here in Ontario, the biggest cannabis market in the country, uh, our provincial government seems to be still kind of um, not going very much of anywhere. Uh, we had the announcement recently that... Um, they would be finally allowing the producers to open their one uh, uh, factory outlet or farm gate outlet store that their uh, Ontario government is going to allow. Uh, that probably should have been done 12 months ago, but anyway, it's happening now. But we still don't have a, a clear path forward on other retail stores in our province. Uh, when this started, there was a talk of a shortage of product. Has that been alleviated? Uh, if there isn't much distribution, is there a shortage? Uh, I would say effectively there there is no shortage anymore. There absolutely was the first uh, six to nine months. Um, despite the claims of some of the federal government spokesmen, the, the, the government's own data, Health Canada data, showed there was not nearly enough finished product, particularly for the dry, smokable cannabis, which is the form of product that's most popular uh, with recreational consumers. Um, but that... Uh, Production output finally did start to increase in spring and kept growing every month in the, over the summer so that uh, at this point, I'd say the producers have uh, have caught up to where the demand is. They still need to grow more to eventually serve uh, the whole market. Uh, you know, Someday when most Canadian consumers actually switch to the legal market, uh, there's not, a, not enough capacity for that yet, but they certainly have enough capacity for the orders they're getting. Um, where we will probably see a new shortage, although on a smaller scale, is as the uh, edibles come out uh, late December, the foods, the beverages, uh, skin lotions, that kind of thing, the vape oils. Uh, there's not going to be enough all on day one, of course, uh, but that will gradually improve as well. So we're, year one was mostly a story about, you know, we didn't have enough product, we didn't have enough retail stores. Uh, year two, looking forward, so if you've got any investors listing, uh, thinking about the next 12 months, I think the issues here are going to be uh, pricing and product quality. Uh, any reason to believe phase two of this will produce better results? 
Uh, many are saying, well, you know, once they get to edibles and all these other things that in, in phase two of this approach, then you're going to see changes. Why, why would we expect anything different there than the rollout of this? Um, I think there will be, it will be different in a couple respects. Uh, first, I should say, though, I don't think it's going to be a sudden gold rush. It's not like all these cannabis companies are suddenly being, uh, uh, rolling in money. Uh, they're still, the ones that survive are still in expansion mode. Uh, not some of the smaller ones will not survive; they'll get taken over. Um, but I think overall it will be better. First of all, everyone has now a little bit more information, uh, and so a little, more, little bit more realistic expectations uh, in terms of how quickly the products come out, in terms of how profitable things will be. Um, the extreme optimists and extreme pessimists, I think, um, are, are moderating their views a bit. Um, one reason for that is uh, that I think it will be better is the edibles um, should have higher profit margins for producers. If you're producing uh, dry smokable cannabis, you're basically selling a raw material. Uh, you har- grow some plants, you harvest them, you package, you sell it. That's really easy for other companies to duplicate. It's really easy for uh, black market suppliers to, to, to duplicate as well. Uh, when you look at the oil products that we've also had over last year, the gel caps uh, and other type of things, those are re- slightly refined. They're one-step processed, uh, so slightly harder for other people to re- reproduce, but still pretty straightforward. But now we're getting into things like uh, beverages, uh, which actually have some rather novel technology involved. Uh, we're going to have food products where uh, part of the success will be on the cannabis ingredients, but part of it will also just be on uh you know, is this brownie actually taste good? Um, so there's a lot more variables there. There's a lot more potential for companies to innovate, add value. So I think that they will get higher profit margins on those than what we've been seeing uh, this year. Uh, the other advantage, I think, going forward this year is that everyone pretty much expects this is going to be a gradual rollout, uh, whereas last year's people were somehow hoping everything would just magically appear October 17th in full volume. Uh, now I think people realize, no, this is going to be kind of uh, a steady increase. Each company is targeting maybe a half dozen products uh, that they're going to make available in the first couple months and gradually add more. Um, so I think it's going to be less boom and bust and more gradual growth. How does this first stage alter uh, or does it uh, investor uh, skepticism. Are, are they still behind this? Are they as less uh, enthusiastic as they were a year ago? How are investors feeling in regard to this one year in? Um, I don't know how they're actually feeling, but if I were talking to an investor, I, I think what I'd be saying is, okay, last year or two years ago, you were making a, an educated bet. Uh, now you should be doing your financial uh, analysis. Now yeah. the companies actually have at least a brief track record They have more concrete plans. They're not just saying, hey, we're going to build lots of greenhouses. Now they're saying, okay, here are the specific products. Uh, Like Canopy Growth uh, gave uh, a little preview of some of their beverage products that they plan to introduce. So I think investors should be looking more in concrete terms now. Okay, what are your specific products? Uh, What is your specific uh, cash flow? Um, If you are looking at a company that has lots of inventory on its balance sheet, you should be looking carefully at what kind of inventory. Um, overall, the industry has uh, far too much dry cannabis, un- unfinished dry cannabis on its inventories. Um, and that is potentially uh, a problem because some of that might uh, never get turned into finished product. It might not be a good enough quality or it might only get into low-grade uh, oils. So if you see a lot of unfinished dry cannabis on the on the books, uh, you should be asking management what its uh, plans are for actually making that into product and making money. Uh, conversely, for if you see a lot of oil products uh, on the uh, balance sheet, you should be concerned about finished oils. Uh, unfinished oil that is basically bulk oil that's been uh, extracted, that will have lots of uses in cannabis phase two in the edibles, beverages, and, and uh, vape oils. But if it's finished product, that means it's already packaged, it's gel caps, uh, and there's too much of that. There's too much uh, existing oil products sitting around. Uh, so you should, if you're an investor, you see that, you should be quizzing management again and saying, okay, 
how, what are your plans? How can you actually get money out of this? Uh, or is this stuff that's going to be written off? What do you think government has learned in the last year? Um, what I'm hoping they're learning uh, is uh, what has worked and what has not worked in their province and what has worked and not worked in other provinces and how can you learn lessons from that. Uh, because if you go back uh, a year ago, just like industry, it was nobody was really sure. Uh, same thing on the government side. We have uh, the federal government and then 13 different uh, provincial or territorial jurisdictions. Each one basically tried their own thing in kind of a grand experiment. So now that we're just over a year in, what I would hope uh, the, the provincial governments are doing is looking around saying, okay, what, what didn't work well for us? Uh, what worked well in other provinces that we can uh, adapt from? Um, so to give you some examples, uh, if you're looking at the private sector model, Alberta, I think, has done a great job. Uh, they've kind of taken an approach and said, okay, uh, as long as nobody gets like a big monopoly on licenses, nobody can have, no firm can have more than 15% of licenses there. As long as that doesn't happen, they're leaving it to the free market to decide where to go put the stores, how many to have, how big the chain should be. Uh, their wholesale agency is... is uh, charging a relatively low markup and just letting, letting the retailers go. Uh, if you look at the public sector model, uh, I think Quebec and Nova Scotia have both done pretty good jobs. Uh, Quebec is running a very lean, very efficient uh, distribution system. They don't even have a warehouse. They just ship directly to the retailers. Um, they're already profitable uh, as a wholesaler, despite the fact they have some of the lowest prices in Canada. Uh, Nova Scotia, one thing they've done well as they recognize that they had a low population density, a relatively small market. So most of their cannabis outlets are actually built into their liquor stores, uh, which means they don't have to sell very much cannabis to cover their costs and make money. Um, that's something other provinces, like here in Ontario, uh, sure, we can, we can support lots of stores in Hamilton, Toronto, but when you look out more in the rural areas of Ontario, northern Ontario, uh, to serve those areas, we're eventually going to need some kind of store within a store concept. Yeah as well. But the first thing we need in Ontario are just more retail stores. When this was introduced way back when, one of the reasons for it was to curb the black market. Has this made a dent in the black market or has this just uh, created a new customer base that uh, now just go into stores? Um, the information from Stats Canada suggests that uh, the overall market, the overall consumption has really not changed very much. Uh, which is certainly good news from the federal government's perspective because they, although they wanted to legalize cannabis, they didn't really want more cannabis consumers. They didn't want more people starting to use it. Um, so that doesn't seem to have changed very much. Um, yes, the legal industry has made a dent in the black market, but it's still a relatively small dent. Uh, prior to legalization, the only legal consumption of cannabis was through the medical system, uh, medical cannabis, and that was... Uh, maybe 8% of the uh, total consumption in Canada, so over 90% was black market. Uh, now, it, uh, I mean, it's hard to tell how big the black market is, but now the legal industry is probably getting uh, maybe a quarter, 25 30% of, of the overall market. So it is a big step forward, uh, but the black market still has majority, so there's still a long way to go. Do you have the? Do you get the feeling that the Ontario government has put this on the back burner for now? Um, it seems you know uh, things like this, buck a beer, whatever. They're just not interested. That's not the brand they're looking for at this point. I'm starting to w I wonder about that. Yes, because because obviously uh, they were the opposite, and you know, free market, free market, which you know you would think conservatives would do. However, uh, I think they're gonna. I think they're worried this is going to turn into another buck a beer if they bring too much attention to it. Your thoughts? Um. It, it's really puzzling in uh, the Ontario government because, yeah, it's uh, they're very much, in word at least, pro-business, uh, not always indeed. Um, you would expect they'd be supporting uh, expansion of retailers. Uh, when they came out with their very first uh, pot license lottery uh, almost a year ago in December, um, let me say oh, we're only going to have 25 stores. Uh, well, the lottery idea wasn't a great one because it, uh, it would be better off running an auction. You would have got more serious entrance. Uh, you would have raised more money for the provincial treasury. But aside from that, having a, a limit of 25, yeah, yeah, that was kind of reasonable because 
it was clear then that we had product shortages. It wasn't clear how long they'd last or how big they'd really be. So, okay, that was a cautious move, but fairly reasonable. Um, but by time spring came along, as I mentioned, uh, supplies were already improving then. Uh, we now know from the Ontario Cannabis Store's financial statements that by the end of March, they actually had pretty generous inventories in their warehouse. Uh, we know from Health Canada data that by then, the producers were seriously ramping up production. So there was no reason in July for the government to come out with the announcement of the second uh, second lottery for another uh, 42 right. stores. Um, they should have just opened up retail uh, licensing at that point. And certainly now... I was expecting that, you know, if they were going to make a fall announcement, I was expecting they were going to say, okay, we're going to open up licensing. Uh, but no, we just got that very, you know, kind of mm. tentative thing uh, saying, okay, yeah, we'll we'll let the producers open their stuff, their stores, and uh, we'll think about the rest. So I don't really know what they're up to. Um, as long as the Ontario market does uh, lacks any reasonable number of stores, uh, that's going to hold back yeah. the overall national Industry. average. Michael Armstrong has been with us. We're going to have to let you go at that point, Michael. Uh, PhD yeah. Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for inviting me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As I speak right now, I'm watching uh, all of these uh, cabinet ministers and, and politicians uh, make their way into uh, Rideau Hall for the unveiling of the new uh, cabinet. And uh, the first thing I can say is, my goodness, look at all the snow in Ottawa, which I guess is par for the course at this time of the year. Uh, to talk more about all of this and what it means moving forward in a minority situation, let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. He has worked as advisors to national parties and leaders and cabinet ministers and such, and uh, he knows a lot of what's going on in, uh, behind these closed doors. Tim is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott, you're welcome. You're right on the snow. I was sledding last Friday afternoon in Ottawa on the 15th of November with my son. So, well, here, you know, here in some parts of, of uh, southern central Ontario, ski hills are opening up earlier than they ever have. Well, and there's a lot of uh, new MPs are about to go down the slope uh, <laughs> as the cabinet starts. Today's their best day ever. Now they're going to have to answer uh, everything after that. It's down the front lawn on crazy carpets. Here we go. Uh, before exactly. we get into what's happening here, uh, just your thoughts on what we're seeing with the impe- impeachment inquiry in the United States, uh, the testimony that we're seeing today from uh, Sondland. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I saw him start this morning, so the president can't be entirely happy with what I saw. Sondland, of course, was his appointee because he was a big donor or something and got put in that EU ambassador's role. And then Vindman yesterday, despite the Democrat, sorry, the Republicans' attempt to discredit him, uh, I-, I thought came across reasonably well. So if you're Trump, you can't be that happy. It's harder to blow up everybody's credibility, including. Uh, the guy you put in as your ambassador. But whether this will actually get to a place where the president is formally impeached, still remain doubtful about that. Does Sunland's testimony confirm quid pro quo? I mean, that's how this all started in the the beginning was uh, Donald Trump's uh, telephone conversation with the Ukraine president and whether he was going to withhold a military uh, aid to them uh, until there was some sort of investigation done into the Bidens or at least that publicly being known. Does that is that is this proven now? Uh, it's harder to disprove. How about that? Um, you know, I don't, don't know if it's entirely proven, but it, it certainly there, there seems to be mounting evidence uh, from people who heard conversations or were part of other discussions that uh, certainly there was a favor at play, a quid pro quo, as you described it. So where does this go from here? Will uh, I mean, obviously, it, it looks as if he will be impeached. Uh, in the House, then this goes to the Senate, and many think that it, it will just die there. Uh, when it gets to the Senate, will the will, will the Senate try to disprove anything that the Democrats have tried to prove, or will they just close her all down? Uh, they might just close her all down and challenge all of the you know, people who've come forward, as they did with Vindman yesterday. Certainly the Republicans were... Uh, the bits and pieces, again, that I saw getting at his credibility, trying to mock him, um, just dis- just dismiss him as a lowly functionary or insult him. And 
Uh, there could be a bit of that saying nobody's credible, so why should you believe anybody? That's a standard tactic in circumstances like this one. At the end of all of this, will the end result be none of this matters? Well, if Trump was any other president, uh, he might take it as leave to acknowledge that he won't run again, but he's not any other president. I think he feeds off all of this stuff, and his supporters feed all off all of this stuff and make it about you know it's there it's them against the world um and the and the democrats i i can they find a compelling candidate to run against and the bunch that are there now nobody's really stood out so and biden there's still questions about biden right um if he becomes the nominee so it's all mucky and i think muck works for trump scott True enough. All right, uh, let's move on to what's happening uh, north of the border. The Prime Minister is set to unveil the new cabinet. Uh, obviously, lots of this leaking out uh, ahead of time. Your thoughts, I guess the big the big movement at this point, Christia Freeland and Catherine McKenna, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so it looks like Freeland is going to be intergovernmental affairs minister and potentially deputy prime minister. Um, I think that's recognition that she was one of Trudeau's best ministers in foreign affairs. Is this I, I, is this the plum job for her? Is this the best thing for her? I don't know if it's as glamorous traveling to Fredericton where I am today as it is to say Frankfurt. <laughs> uh, nothing against Fredericton. I, I'm quite having a good time here today, but uh, it, it's a different gig and it's a different skill set. This is what I think is going to be fascinating. Uh, Freeland has, has spent her life as a, as a high octane global jet setter for good or for bad. And yes, she did well with Trump and that was not easy. But the, you know, the, the to and fro of provincial federal relations is a very different game. It, it certainly signifies how important the prime minister believes it to be, given all of the discussions we've had about national disharmony at the moment or lack of national unity. Uh, so her skills are going to be put to the test. I, you're real different too. Remember Dominic LeBlanc before he got sick was doing this role. He's an old school politician who's much better at dealing, I would think, at, at, uh, with premiers and the like. So it's going to be one to watch for me. I don't know if she's going to have the same success in this arena as she had uh, with uh, with the Americans. And if Donald Trump, you know, I'm, I'm not quite saying that Donald Trump makes it all look easy, but uh, it's much more difficult can be to deal with 10 premiers or 13 premiers and their their choices and their immediate issues. Is this taking advantage of her skill set? Because many did compliment her on what a job she did as uh, in, in foreign affairs. Is this making full uh, use of her skill set or is it just that this party needs her now with the divisiveness, especially with the West? Well, it's about hoping to tap into her skill set. As I said, she certainly has had it on the international stage. Can't she replicate it domestically? That's what the Prime Minister clearly is hoping for. Uh, is How would she feel about this? <laughs> well, like I said, and, and again, you know, Fredericton to Frankfurt, I get that. But I, I mean, again, even dealing with interests and skill sets, is this, can she master, can she bring the country together? Well, she's certainly a person with talent. Uh, I think you have to give her that. Uh, can she apply that talent to the domestic front? Well, we will soon see. Uh, you think of others who've had this role, um, and they've had more domestic experience, although Joe Clark comes to mind. I mean, he was Brian Mulroney's external affairs minister, as it was called then, and when unity issues came to the fore under Mulroney's watch, he put Clark back in uh, intergovernmental affairs, and uh, he, after the whole Meech Lake debacle, and it was seen as a, as a signal that the Prime Minister was being serious about it. I don't know if Christian Friedland, uh, she's he's certainly serious about it. I really don't know, because my experience, my, from what I have seen of her in Ottawa, her focus has always been on the outward-facing issues of Canada, the foreign affairs issues. Right. This will be new for her. Um, can she master it? I still, as I say, I'm an open book on this. I'm not sure it's the best appointment for her skills. Uh, what about the new foreign affairs minister? Uh, Champagne, he, he did reasonably well, I think, in trade. Uh, he, the prime minister clearly likes him. Um, uh, he uh, he uh, has the opportunity to, to grow there. He doesn't come into it with the same experience as... Uh, as Friedland did prior to that, but he has been in the junior ministry for a little while there. He's had some success. So 
uh, I think the prime minister thinks he can step up. I mean, uh, we'll see. And, and and also having a Quebecer in that particular role um, is always something that is well liked in Quebec. And Catherine McKenna. Uh, out uh, of the environment into uh, infrastructure and communities. How does she view this? She goes from saving the environment to writing the checks. Um, Mm. Got a bit more power uh, in some ways. Uh, That, I think, maybe is a blessed relief for the minister. It's an important job, right? Because she's got to get money flowing, and it's not flowing as well as it would like in many provinces. So she's going to have now, instead of a, a, she, a bit of a different role, she's instead of confronting people more often around their lack of effectiveness on climate change, she's going to have to work a bit more cooperatively with them. And I think she has the skills to do that to get money flowing. It's amazing what a checkbook can do when you're giving people money as opposed to telling them they're going to have to implement a tax. Hmm. Uh, It seemed at times she was on a different page than what the Prime Minister was. Is that accurate? It just seemed that the message she was selling was was different than when he, uh, an example of of buying pipelines or trying to get them through, and and she was kind of preaching the other. Is that accurate? Or was she, or was he playing off, uh, was she doing something that allowed him to play off of her, right? Hmm. There's always a bit of that. I think the thing with Catherine McKinnon, of course, she's from Hamilton, where uh, you are broadcasting today, people in Hamilton will know she's always very passionate about what she does. I think she believed in uh, what she was doing at climate change, and I don't think there was a it was easy for her to gear down because of her commitment to it so i think that's what it was and i think the prime minister was comfortable with that because he could as i say wedge off of that in different different places and sometimes prime ministers like to create those scenarios uh new environment uh, environment minister is this the new hot spot no pun intended <laughs> Well, you, you'll you'll recall uh, we talked about it after the elections. There was a lot of chatter among the chattering classes in coal frigid Ottawa that Stephen Guibault, who is also going into cabinet, was going to be the environment minister. And Guibault uh, was a was a well known environmental activist in the country before he uh, got into federal politics. Uh, so I think the Liberals will frame this up with Guibault not being there as we listened. And if you're Scott Moe or Jason Kenney, we're we're really listening will be their message because Mr. Wilkinson, though elected from British Columbia, uh, has spent a lot of time in Saskatchewan, and that's been pushed out a lot in advance of this appointment. So, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the short term, maybe it buys uh, a few mild criticisms as opposed to uh, uh, flashbang hot criticisms from uh, from the West. But I, I think it's it's about sending a signal uh, that uh, at least you have somebody in that portfolio who worked in the West and understands the importance of resource development there. Uh, David Lamenti stays on as Justice Minister. Surprise there. Does that mean any? Does that mean anything in regard to the SNC Lavalin affair? No, I don't think so. I think they just. He just basically taken that job as as you know in the in the new year or sorry in, earlier in the year it seems like we're already into 2020 we're not yet of course uh, but he'd taken it earlier in the year after Wilson Rabel left I, I don't I think they want some continuity there it's important to have continuity at justice so uh, I don't read uh, it being having any meaning whatsoever on SNC Lavalin. Uh, your thoughts on O'Regan in as uh, as natural resources minister. My buddy, you mean my fellow Newfoundlander? Mm, yeah. Our mothers used to get our hair done together. Is There's that right? Group. Oh Jesus, yes. I mean, <laughs> Seamus and I used to date sisters years ago. Scott, you're getting all the goods now. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh yes, yes. I actually ran into him uh, a week ago. Uh, I uh, so my friend bias aside, I think the intent of the appointment is this. So. There are three provinces that are heavily dependent on resources for their future. Alberta, Saskatchewan, and yes, mine, Newfoundland and Labrador. Seamus' background is uh, he was with Brian Tobin, and he was with Jean Charest, by the way, briefly years and years ago, and was very involved in uh, pushing the Tobin government's uh, advancement of the Hibernia offshore oil field. Seamus has also been a voice at the Liberal cabinet table saying, hey, you need to pay attention to all of this. So uh, not unlike Jonathan Wilkinson, O'Regan's appointment is going to be framed in 
to uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan as being, look, you got somebody in there. He may not be from the West, uh, but he gets the importance <laughs> of oil. Uh, and uh, whether they buy that, he, or he not, may not be from the West, but he puts gas in his car too. Boy, we we are pros- but but is really fascinating. Again, so last week I believe it was. Um, there was a report came out of Newfoundland that again said uh, if we don't maximize our oil development potential, so not unlike Alberta and Saskatchewan, we're going to have tough economic times. So they'll play off all of that. Look, have you ever met a Newfoundlander, me included, who hasn't been prepared to extend the metaphor to suit the circumstances? I love it. I love it. So uh, at the end, as in the end of all, at the end of all of this, obviously, as you mentioned, not a lot of well, no representation in Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, for the Liberals. We're, we're dealing with a minority government situation. Uh, how, how does this move forward? Is this enough to convince the West that we're listening? Uh, is, no, is, is, is this is this the team that uh, that can handle a minority situation for Trudeau? Well, he thinks it is, and it's. Uh, I, I think he's trying to be creative with what he has. Let's see, again, the Wilkinson and O'Regan appointments. I think uh, he, he, Freeland is going to be key in all of this, uh, and what they're going to do on carbon pricing. And, uh, you know, the provinces are sending signals that they might be prepared to move on certain things. Um, uh, he, he's making the best. He's making with a silk purse out of a sow's ear, as uh, as my mother used to say back to mothers. Um, the, the conservatives will certainly be very critical of this. I suspect Mo and and Kenny may say, "All right, we can live with this for now." Uh, but we'll see what the new year brings. And I, I look, they'll be looking at things like the budget and uh, how quickly Trudeau um, continues to push along Trans Mountain to decide where this is really going to go. And I think there's such enmity between Trudeau and uh, some of the Western premiers that uh, they they could put Stephen Harper in as natural resources minister and it still wouldn't be good enough, I suspect, just because of the political blood in the water. Uh, is there any surprises here for you? Is there anything out of the ordinary? Is there well, any Hail Marys I mean, here? Well, what hasn't been leaked is surprising for me. So what is the one thing they're holding back? I mean, usually in these scenarios, there's a lot. Um, there's always some little goody. So a lot of the stuff has been put out there so far. Mm-hmm. I, I, the Prime Minister is going to get asked about Saskatchewan and Alberta and how he deals with that. So are we going to see a surprise appointment this afternoon? He's let a lot of this other stuff sink in now, so people have been talking about it for 12 hours. What's a surprise? That's what I'm looking for, because usually there's one or two. So we'll probably know that in about 30 or 40 minutes or, or, or sooner. At the end of the day, until the prime minister starts digging a pipeline, is anything going to be resolved here? I mean, is that what he has no, to move on? I, that yes, and I, I mean, you know, there's. I don't suspect there'll be any movement on C69, but is there? Uh, so I think the pipeline is key, and what comes forward or what revisions may happen to current environmental uh, regulation. I know, for example, O'Regan was arguing vigorously within Liberal Caucus about the need not to have doubled environmental reviews of certain projects. Does that? sort of vigor come with him in natural resources and have some influence on government policy. Uh, what about dividing up uh, climate change and in the environment and so on and so forth? Is that needed? Maybe, um, but uh, look, there are going to be more ministers. It's a, a, there's a great joke there, right? Uh, so you're hmm. a smaller government, but you need more people to govern, and that's for Trudeau's own political management purposes. Um, I, I, if, you, if you're Trudeau and this is your, your key thing, environment and climate change, then why would you break them up? Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.